Buckle up. In the pop culture landscape of 2021, all sorts of music, movies, and television gave evidence that there's no such thing as secular. For this mega episode of the Think Christian Podcast, the whole team comes together to celebrate our favorites. I'm Josh Larson, your host and editor over at thinkchristian.net. This is the second year that we've done this now, gotten the whole band together to consider all the pop culture that came out in a given calendar year and talk about how it reflects God's gospel story. As we did last year at this time, we're recording this show and reflecting on a year that's beneath a pandemic-induced shadow of anxiety and uncertainty. It's our prayer at Think Christian that you've had some experience of God's mercy and grace in the midst of all that, and that our conversations might offer a small bit of encouragement. We've heard from listeners throughout the year that have testified to that, and it's our pleasure to be able to share some of their thoughts on this episode about the best of pop culture from 2021 via social media and via emails to tcpodcast at thinkchristian.net. We heard from many of you about your favorite TV, your favorite movies, your favorite music. So before we get to our picks from our regular panelists and Here's a bit of a teaser. We're going to talk about Reservation Dogs, The Mountain Goats, and Licorice Pizza. First, let's start with a choice from listener Aaron Potter. One of my favorite movies of the year was Disney's Encanto, a beautiful film whose characters and visuals celebrate the beautiful diversity of God's people and his creation. It felt very much like a film about the family of God. In the family madrigal, as well as in the body of Christ, everyone has different gifts and different strengths, but all are necessary to the flourishing of the community. Thank you very much for that, Aaron. And keep those picks coming because, especially if we don't mention one of your favorites on this show, we can give it a little time on the massive list we're compiling to put in the show notes for this episode. So send those suggestions to tcpodcast at thinkchristian.net. So Aaron there with a movie pick. Let's shift gears as we get into the show proper and discuss some of the best television of 2021. All right, we have a couple of good friends here to talk television, J.R. Forresteros and Michelle Reyes. It was going to be even better, should say at the top, that Catherine Freeman was going to join us and unfortunately was not feeling well when it came to time of recording. So maybe we'll find a way to, to hear from her. I know that her pick for one of her favorite TV series of 2021 is uh, a show that both of you have seen. So maybe we can jump into that as well and touch on that. Actually, Michelle, I think you said it was one of your favorites. So that works out uh, pretty good. I want to start a little bit more broadly here at the beginning and tackle a general question. So for me, the line between TV and movies just continues to blur. And I'm really curious how you guys are thinking about that distinction lately. What is the main difference for you? How do you explain the difference of the experience maybe of a series as opposed to a feature film, especially as we're watching more and more feature films in our homes now, the realm of TV, movies have kind of invaded there. TV is starting to look more like movies. Is there much of a distinction for either of you? Maybe, Michelle, you want to get us started on that? Sure. Yeah, I think that's a great question, especially one to ask during the pandemic as things have changed in terms of access as well. But I 
I still feel the TV shows and feature films have different narrative structures. And what I mean by that is that a, a movie, a feature film is supposed to have a clear beginning, middle, and end. Whereas TV shows are more episodic. They can have multiple beginnings, middles, and ends. Uh, the strength of TV shows is that they can do deep dives into different themes per episode, which can be so provocative and fresh. Whereas, you know, oftentimes a feature film will take one theme and it's really sort of uh, mapped out throughout the course of 90 minutes uh, or, or so. And I'll use the the MCU as an illustration because I'm a big Marvel uh, fan. I think Black Panther is a feature film that does both really well. It has a clear narrative, beginning, middle, and end, uh, but it does a deep dive into multiple themes in a really well-done way. You know, it has a tight narrative and complexity, if you will. That being said, I have, as much as I adore phases one through three of, of, of the MCU, I have been particularly frustrated with phase four, which we saw mapped out largely this past year with a lot of TV shows, WandaVision, Loki, uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier. I just felt like they missed the opportunity for doing long-form narratives well. They didn't follow episodic formats. There wasn't an immediate hook of like, what's the main driving force? Uh, who's the bad guy? Why is this important? Uh, you know, and, and they didn't explore unique themes per episode outside of WandaVision. I also have the same frustration with the, the latest Spider-Man No Way Home. So I think that critique goes, goes both ways. Yeah, and I think the MCU is really blurring those lines, right? Because right. they have so many streaming series that connect with their movies. And yes. um, yeah, that's made things a little bit more confusing. How about you, JR? What's, what's your experience like? Yeah, I uh, I tend to agree with Michelle. I, I tend to think of it in how are they asking me to watch this thing? You know, Josh, I remember when, uh, what was the Scorsese movie, The Irishman? was The that, Irishman, his last yeah, one? You chided me because I said it took me like 10 sittings to get through it. And you were like, <laughs> oh, just like he intended, you know. Um, but even implicit in that is this idea that this this piece of storytelling was designed to be consumed in one sitting, right? Maybe multiple times. The, it's entirely possible that a, a director wants you to watch something like Memento, right? That single sitting story gets richer the more times you watch it, but you're not supposed to like watch 20 minutes, pause, go get something, come back tomorrow, right. whatever. Whereas uh, a TV show, I think, is designed to be consumed in multiple sittings. Even things that are binged, right? They they stop and start. Now, again, to Michelle's point, I think it's done sometimes well, sometimes poorly. I think a lot of shows, uh, the, the Netflix Marvel shows, not to keep picking on Marvel, but, uh, you know, a lot of times uh, the critiques of a lot of those shows were they fit seven episodes of story into a 13-episode bag, you know, and it was mm. like you felt a lot of, like, filler and drag, and it, it seemed often that form was dictating the story rather than the other way around, and I think, I think what could be a promise of this blurred, reality that we're living in is that a story could dictate, you know, if this needs to be a 20-minute short film, let it be that. That's great. We have plenty of platforms that lend itself to that. If this needs to be a 90-minute feature, great. Go ahead and do that. If it needs to be a three-hour feature, go ahead and do that. If it if it needs to be a seven-episode limited series or a four-season TV show, we have the ability to do the, all of those things and let the story dictate the form but again, 
we're not quite there yet. I think we still have an idea that things need to be 20 episodes or 13 episodes or 10 episodes or 90 minutes or whatever. Well, and what's the reasoning behind those decisions? Are they creative decisions or are they business decisions, as you suggested? Like, is it a streaming service looking to fill so many slots or is it a particular creative team looking to tell the story they want to tell. So something sometimes those lines get crossed too, I think. It also strikes me that it's a question of attention span, as you just described, JR. You know, you say you want to sit down and watch a movie in its entirety, but do we do that at home very often? I try to. I think maybe that's one of the reasons I still lean towards the feature experience because I find it, you know, just naturally easier to do that. But I also find it easier to not do that at home and allow for interruptions. And at the same time, as you say, a streaming series, yeah, it does have built-in interruptions narratively, but the way these services are set up, they don't really allow for them, right? It's the button pops up. It's like next episode, five seconds. Now, does that really make it a continuous attention experience? Or are we just consuming more or less deeply? Because throughout those four episodes we watch in a night, are we ha- watching with 60% of our brain and we are on our phones and we are, you know, doing whatever else? So, so yeah, it's still kind of a wild west out there, I think, that we're navigating our way through. But there's still a ton of good stuff out there as we want to get to and talk about those series that did grab our attention and hold our attention. And we wanted to finish. I mean, that's a litmus test these days, right? Am I going to finish this series? And we have a couple of picks here that you guys made for your favorite television of 2021 that definitely fall into that category. Let's start with Reservation Dogs. Now, this is a Hulu series about four indigenous teens just aching to escape their lives in rural Oklahoma. It's a comedy series. These are half-hour episodes created by Sterling Harju and the great Taika Waititi. A lot of authenticity going on here. This is the first series to be filmed in Oklahoma. It features an almost entirely indigenous North American cast and production crew. I don't know if any of that captures the experience of watching this show, though. I have to say, I didn't know quite what to make of its tone and style after the first episode. By the second episode, completely hooked by the humor and the heart of it. So definitely stuck through to the end. You guys both love this show. Let me jump back to you, Michelle. Why was this one of your favorites of the year? Oh, man. Well, kind of to go back to what I mentioned at the beginning, I thought the TV show provocatively did a deep dive into a different theme or different aspect of life for um, Native Americans on a reservation. Uh, But through this juvenile perspective, with this sort of comedic lens that these are just kids and, you know, they're like saving up for California and they have like, what, just a handful of dollars? I mean, so it just, there's this humor um, overlaid. I did find two things. One, I, I thought it was very interesting that there are some some interracial, intercultural uh, dynamics. You know, you have in the first episode uh, conflict between the Native American teens and an African-American mailman. Uh, in episode two, which I think is by far my favorite episode of the entire uh, series, you know, you have this Asian doctor <laughs> who's like, the catch-all, like he does everything. He's the eye doctor, the foot doctor. Like there's so much tension, but once again, through a juvenile perspective. And so there's, I found myself like cringing and laughing. And, you know, there's that moment where the Asian doctor just gets so upset. And he's like, I just, I just want to go back where I'm from. You know, <laughs> and the kid is like from China. And he's like, no, from San Diego, like, and I'm Korean. And that, like, yeah. it's just, it encapsulates so much of the humor 
and the awkwardness of those sorts of cross-cultural relationships. Um, but episode two, it had me in tears because what really became apparent right away in all of the things that these kids are doing, striving to leave and whatnot, like they're starved for attention and for kinship. And I remember one of the first questions I felt like I was wrestling with while watching the show was like, where's the parents? Where where are the elders? Where, where are like the older people? Um, and you know, the whole episode is in the clinic. And one of the boys spends what, like less than five minutes with this older woman that he doesn't know in this hospital bed. And like, he's, all, he's like, that's my grandma, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, and I think it's such a deeply biblical moment uh, of our need for community and the importance of intergenerational, um, you know, relationships, mentorship. And the grandma, you know, she's her eyes are closed and she's she's like dreaming like of this vision of the past uh, when when her people were more connected to the land and, and thriving and healthy. I feel like in many ways she's kind of passing this like visionary legacy onto this boy and they just go outside and sit, you know, in silence. And I felt like it was this kernel of hope in the midst of a show was focusing on all the like hardships and negativity and and the the negative impact of the quote white man you know there's always this white man joke per episode it was like this small kernel of hope in 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 the show that I found really touching yeah it's a beautiful moment and i think speaks to the goodness of this kid too because as you say they're trying to raise money to uh escape to california and a lot of petty crime is involved in that but you see too like this kid i think it's lane factor as cheese is the character you know has this goodness of heart where this woman mistakes him for her grandson and he's going to play along for her sake i think kinship is a perfect word to use i think it's what um these four teens are seeking and they find it somewhat together with each other some of them do have it at home each home life is different and as you said the episodes somewhat focus on a different teen each time and we get to learn more about their home lives. But yeah, they that's the overriding question, I think, is as they plan to escape to California, are they going to find more kinship there? Or might it be here on this reservation, even though they're not finding it in some ways? Is it possible that it could be created there in the ways you just described in that scene with Cheese and the older woman just sitting together? So yeah, that second episode, I agree, totally the best one entirely takes place at this clinic. You get a sense of this entire community just by sitting in this one place where people come in and out. Was that a favorite episode for you, JR? Or did you have another one that stood out to you? Oh, I mean, asking me to pick a favorite episode of Res Dogs is is cruel. Um, (laughs) I thought the last episode was beautiful. I thought Willie Jack's episode was really incredible. I mean, I yeah, it was hard for me to pick a favorite. Listeners probably not surprised. I'm I'm a white guy, right? And and I'm like I'm like super white. My 23 and me is like all colonizer all the way down. Like I have no connection to the kinds of stories being told in reservation dogs. And I think one of the reasons I loved it so much was because oftentimes when people like me talk about diversity of storytelling or hearing other voices or things like that, it's from a position of of um like checking off a box or fulfilling a quota as though it's not something that's actually going to be good. It's just something that we need to do to like pat ourselves on the back and feel feel good. And I think Reservation Dogs illustrates much in the same way I think FX's show Atlanta did, that storytelling that is owned by the communities that are telling these stories is not sacrificing quality in any way. It's actually, it's actually creating these spaces that are 
new, that are fresh, that are exciting, that are provocative, that are everything. You know, all of the things we want stories to be in a way just by just by listening to people that have been doing this stuff for a long time. Uh, Sterling, uh, so I've been reading this book called We Had a Little Real Estate Problem, which is a history of Native Americans and comedy by an author named Cliff Nesteroff. And it was, the author interviewed Sterling Harjo back when Harjo was like just beginning the process of making the show with FX. And so it's interesting to hear you know, Harjo was part of a com- an all-native comedy troupe called the 1491s. The warrior that Bear sees in his visions is actually one of Harjo's comedy troupe friends, who that guy was one of my favorite characters in the show. Um, because that character so often in a white-run show would be a stereotype who is just the like mystic, magical native person. But because it was coming from an indigenous person, it completely undercut all that in a way that still, this still was about Bear's connection to his history and not only his family history, but his tribal history and their history in this land with the colonizers of this land. But it was also funny and fresh and relevant in ways that Uh, Like Michelle said, a teenager would probably experience these things, you know? It was such a breath of fresh air. It was so funny. And yet, Josh, you were talking about the tone, right? What I've been learning from listening to my Native friends and from Native people, I mean, as soon as this show came out, every single Native person that I follow on Twitter was in rapture about how great this show was and how much they felt seen, how much they recognized, like they were name dropping people from their own local communities who were the various people in the show. And, and it, it was just, it was, it was very clear to me that the tone that made me feel uncomfortable and unsure in so many places was so much the tone that resonated with their lives. And I don't know, I received the show so much as a gift. It was such an, it was such an opportunity for me to bear witness to indigenous peoples and indigenous storytelling in a way that I have never had the opportunity to before. And again, it was amazing and hilarious and great. It wasn't like something I had to endure, you know, to, to check a box and say like, oh, I, you know, I, I watched it for Indigenous People's Heritage Month or something like it was, yeah. it was a, something I looked forward to every week. Yes. You know, not cultural vegetables, right? Yeah. I just wanted to add to that, that I think one of the most provocative things about the show is that it's such a deep dive into the life and experience and reality of, of, of Native Americans. And yet, I think the themes um, are, are laid out in such a way that it's extremely relatable to any black or brown community. You know, the issues of uh, food deserts and, and unhealthy eating, you know, that like greasy, greasy fried bread, <laughs> kind of, a, <laughs> of like every community, ha- you know, can relate to that. Uh, and and um, the, the idea of wanting to get out, that desire to get out and to, to make it um, to thrive somewhere else, which JR, to your point, this warrior, the bear is having visions about what he's actually saying is stay and make your community better. And so I think that those themes, wanting to get out, choosing to stay, actually doing good where you're rooted and where you're planted. I just felt like for me as an Indian American and even for my husband, Aaron, we, you know, we watched, we binged watched the series together um, as, as a Latino. And even um, that other, that episode where Bear is trying to um, impress his dad and the whole episode is about him getting ready for his dad. You know, there's, there's like an eight second 
scene in that episode where he's like lifting weights. And, you know, if you weren't paying too much attention, you just kind of watch it and move on. But for any any son who doesn't have a dad in his life, you know, and, and there's that moment of possibly seeing him, that like eight seconds of like him lifting weights, it speaks volumes to, to a young boy trying to like impress his dad and, and the weight of that. And we just, we were in tears at the end of that episode too. So I just thought, what an amazing balance they make of, of highlighting, centering the Native American way of life and, and experience in reality today, while also making it so relatable to any other black or brown person watching the show and to feel like, yeah, that I can connect with that. That relates in, in, in different ways. Yeah, it's a it's a balancing act that this movie kind of miraculously manages while being very funny, you know, managing to be specific and universal at once. And and it's, you know, representing in that way the vision of the kingdom of God where diversity is something that's honored and celebrated, you know, it's not uh, the vision is not just this monochrome idea of what humanity looks like, but it's uh, it's absolutely diverse and absolutely celebrated for that. You mentioned Bear, and we should, I mean, such a great performance by the young actor there. We should probably go ahead and mention the four leads, and I hope I have these names right. I, sounds like I already screwed up. Sterling uh, Harjo is how you said it, JR, which I, I trust you as one of the co-creators. Um, but the cast... Defero Wunatai as Bear, great sort of like, I guess, kind of the lead of the group, the leader of the group, though that's part of the fun dynamic is who is the leader. But Devery Jacobs as Elora and Paulina Alexis as Willie Jack, we already mentioned. And then, yeah, mentioned Lane Factor as Cheese. Just the dynamic of these four and their individual personalities. And going back to the cultural element, what I found fascinating is that as these teens try to find themselves, you know, amidst a number of cultural influences. One way they you can see their striving slash confusion is in their wardrobes, uh, the way these kids dress. And, and think about the influences they have going on here. They have indigenous religion and traditions. We've already talked about colonial Christianity, which is humorously represented by this white Jesus motif. Hey, white Jesus. And then, <laughs> oh, such a great line. And then, you know, youth culture and hip hop. So, they're so layered, these kids, in what they wear. There are so many layers going on. And in some cases, their hair represents traditional Native American hairstyles, but then they'll have a pop t-shirt on, um, layered by something else over it. I don't know if White Jesus shows up in, in the uh, costume design, but there is that portrait hanging in Willie Jack's house. And yeah, I love the greeting that uh, Polina Alexis gives as Willie Jack when she, whenever she passes by. What's up, White Jesus? So yeah, a lot of um, great things swirling about in Reservation Dogs. And you nailed it, JR. I have a similar background to you. And the destabilizing experience I had in that first episode was exactly that. I'm seeing things I'm unfamiliar with. I'm hearing from folks I'm unfamiliar with. Even if it were just to be educated, that would be valuable. But you're right. The magical key of the of the series is that it does that while being hugely entertaining 
and hilarious. So, so highly recommended uh, Reservation Dogs from all three of us. I think if we want to move on to uh, the other TV series that we want to highlight, uh, Mayor of Easttown, we are all fans as well. This is the one that Catherine definitely wanted to pick when she had planned to be able to be with us. But sounds like Mayor of Easttown is one of your favorites too, Michelle. This is a crime drama, a limited series. So one of those that is, again, blurring the lines. It's like an extended feature in some ways. It's not going to have another another season after this, um, but yet is broken into different episodes. It was on HBO and Kate Winslet starred, has the title role, plays a detective investigating the murder of a teenage mother in her hardscrabble Philadelphia suburb. Meanwhile, her own life is in disarray following her son's death by suicide and her own subsequent divorce. So yeah, Michelle, um, you said this was one of your favorites of the year too. Tell me why. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'll first say there was two reasons why I even chose to watch the show. And the first is I love crime dramas. Broadchurch, definitely a favorite um, and, and, and others, but also to Kate Winslet. When I saw that it was Kate Winslet, um, maybe this is going to reveal my age, but like I grew up watching like Kate Winslet and Pride and Prejudice and then, you know, Titanic and whatnot. So I, of course. I just, I'm a, I'm a big Kate Winslet fan. So I was like, okay, crime drama and Kate, this is going to be great. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> it didn't, it didn't disappoint. It's funny because as soon as we started watching the first episode, my husband and I, it was like, oh man, another cranky detective. Like, why are these detectives always angry at life and their lives are in shambles? Um, I think that this TV series did a really good job at approaching her character in a, in a new and fresh way and really giving nuance to layers of struggles within her personal life, marriage, her divorce, um, her son, even just, you know, her sort of a sports past and how she's coming to grips with like middle age and like the days of glory behind her and like all of that. It was it was very refreshing. And and I think also too, while it did kind of make everybody throughout the show feel like a suspect, <laughs> I was like, it could uh, maybe at times on the nose a little bit, but it had such a surprise ending, uh, which I appreciate. I never like watching a crime drama where like, second episode in, I'm like, oh, I, I know who the killer is, you know, and, and this was a total surprise ending and not who you would have imagined at all. And so I, I thought between the acting, the dialogue, just the slow, it was a slow enough pace to really feel like you understood the characters, the town, the dynamics without it feeling too slow. And you're like, I, I'm bored. I thought that was all done really well. And I thought their exploration of grief avoided was really... Once again, I think in the midst of a pandemic, and all of us, I think, are just carrying our own levels of grief, felt so relatable. You know, she's escaping to her work to to avoid all of these layers and burdens of grief that she's carrying within her home life. And obviously, as as the series goes on, it just it becomes unbearable and things begin to spill over and um, she's forced to confront her, her own pains. Um, but I just thought it was it was it was well done and really relatable. And she felt like a strong female lead that that um, I felt like we needed in 2021. Why do they call you Lady Hawk? Mm. I made a shot in a in a basketball game that that basketball game 25 years ago. Okay, must have been some shot. Most places, no. Around here, yeah. Yeah, and never too much uh, Kate Winslet. I agree with you on that. That was probably the draw for me as well. JR, I know that you've seen Mayor of Easttown, maybe not at the top of your list from last year, but what, what did you make of it? 
Yeah, you know, I came to it after multiple people texted me and said, have you watched this yet? And I kept saying, no, I haven't. I keep hearing good things, blah, blah, you know. Finally, I was like, okay, we'll watch it. And, you know, I was a huge fan of True Detective, uh, first season, obviously, when HBO did that. So like Michelle, I love a good, you know, I love a good gritty crime drama. You know, I love Tana French novels. Uh, I, I'm here for it. I thought it was funny a little bit that this show seemed to mimic True Detective in so many ways, especially the sort of like accent fixation that so many people were drawn to True Detective for. You know, it was set in uh, in uh, rural Louisiana. So you got the, you know, the good gumbo, thick kind of Cajun accent there. <laughs> Here you get the like hard tack, like Eastern PA, you know, kind of thing. Which, I don't know, someone at some point is probably going to write something about why we are so attracted to these, like, hyper-realized, niche, rural, white, you know, crime drama things. I think what I appreciated about this show, especially, honestly, thinking about it sort of again up against Reservation Dogs, is it showed the sort of generational trauma that comes from like the the white working poor. This is a community certainly that has not been as aggressively uh, stamped out as indigenous uh, American peoples, but they have in many ways been ignored or used by, uh, you know, state and federal government for, you know, voting and then pretty much ignored beyond that. You know, uh, very little investment in infrastructure, very little investment in social services or education or things like that. And so I think one of the things you see in Mayor of Easttown is how just how broken Easttown is, how completely how completely without hope so many folks in that community are, which is in many ways underpinning the whole crime. You know, um, you see the state not only of kids these days, but also of their parents and their parents above them and, and how all of this sort of combines to create this very dark place where there's not much hope. And, you know, it, that's all embodied in Mayor, which to Michelle's point, it was fun to see a female be that lead role because there's so many ways you could imagine Kate Winslet's being a man and then you have another yeah, again you you really have a true detective spinoff at that point but yeah I, I thought that there was so much it was just so much about how people are broken and how communities are broken and then what that does to us you know in, in the long term and I, I just found that Sad, you know, but also really, really compelling. And, and I think to Michelle's point, the surprise ending of the show really put a strong stamp at the end of that and said, like, yeah, this is what we're talking about. It's a it's a grim milieu. I mean, absolutely. It, compared to Reservation Dogs, not a lot of comedy here. Maybe you get a little bit of it in moments of Winslet's performance. Um, and for me, it was to go back to her, you know, that that was the highlight of the series. I may be less inclined than the two of you to seek out sort of an extended mystery drama just because you can sometimes see the gears cranking. And you mentioned this, Michelle. Yeah, it was good that they kept us guessing, but it was also like you almost couldn't invest in any revelation because you knew, well, we've got six episodes to go and and <laughs> I'm sure this is not... This is not it. But Winslet, you know, anchors it all. And I think it struck me what she's doing, what's so good about what she's doing is it's kind of two things at once. She has this tough, impenetrable wall that you were talking about, Michelle, that really defines the character. That is that is Mare. She's not going to let anyone in. She's not going to let the grief in or out. 
But at the same time, you know, she allows little cracks so that the audience can deeply care for her. And I think those two things should be working against each other and somehow Winslet balances them beautifully so they, they're working in concert. She's just a deeply angry character. And uh, to that point, there we do have a post on the TC website by Robert Hubbard that really delicately explores that element. He, he essentially asks, when does anger, even righteous anger, destroy us? How do we overcome it? And then for a hopeful answer, even in this grim milieu, he he leans on a few passages from Ephesians. So would encourage folks to check that out at thinkchristian.net about Mare of Easttown by Robert Hubbard. But yeah, maybe not maybe not an easy watch, but I think it was a rewarding one. And I'll, I'll say a, a few comments. One, my dad's side, all of our relatives are in Pennsylvania and uh, Delaware. And so the way that uh, Kate Winslet is slurring her R's, like warder and things like that, I'm like, that's my grandma. <laughs> that's okay. those are my, my aunts and uncles. So I actually found that incredibly relatable. And then two, to the point of like every person feeling as a suspect, uh, you know, fans of the show were calling those red marings. <laughs> uh, you ah. know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, We're on there. Right, right. Uh, and then uh, finally, I, I appreciate, um, you know, th- th- so Roger, Roger Ebert, you know, film critic, you know, he talks about movies being empathy machines. And I really felt, uh, to JR's point, that, that this TV series does that well for the poor working whites, you know, especially for, for the girl who, who is killed, that uh, the, the story uh, revolves around. This is a, a young teenage girl who has nobody, you know, a broken relationship with her dad, obviously a really bad situation with her ex-boyfriend, poor, no help, uh, you know, needing of her, her, her baby, baby boy to get this ear surgery, her death, and also just the lack of agency that so many of these, these figures have. It really, even, even if you do not know somebody like this, it just kind of you know, you're able to enter imaginatively into that world and, and just understand the pain and the struggle that they're going through. And I thought that was another thing that this series did really well. Yeah. And as you're describing that, Michelle, you know, some of those situations we do see in reservation dogs as well, you know, so different forgotten communities, but in some ways um, they're experiencing the same forgottenness and trying to work through it um, through their own cultural situations. And uh, yeah, it's it's interesting how these shows kind of, I never would have thought of them as a pair, but as we're talking about them, I do see some things arising there. Let me hear though, we spent a good amount of time on those two shows. Before we go, just can I quickly get one more title from each of you that is maybe another TV show that you love from last year? If you were putting together a top five or a top 10, what else would be on there? Michelle, it sounds like not one of the MCU series would make it for you. So is there somewhere else you'd go? Well, I so Josh, you and I talked about Nine Perfect Strangers uh, earlier last year. Mm-hmm. I thought that that was a just a wonderful exploration on um, health culture and just so much of what was happening right now in terms of like the self help world. And runner up would be The Wheel of Time. Uh, I, I really enjoy Robert Jordan's uh, books and and the fantasy series was entertaining. I think there was some missed opportunities for depth. It was just a really fun TV series to watch. And. Wheel of Time, you're working on something for Think Christian on yes. that, right? So, yes. all right, we More will we will look forward to that. How about you, JR? What other series did you enjoy spending time with last year? I mean, I cannot help but say Only Murders in the Building. 
the uh, Hulu send up of true crime podcasting starring, of course, everyone's favorite comedy trio, Martin Short, Steve Martin and Selena Gomez. Uh, yes. So, <laughs> <laughs> seriously, I don't know how those I mean, I know how Steve Martin and Martin Short have a long history together, but how Selena Gomez got into that mix. I, I don't know. I can't wait to read the oral history <laughs> of it, but it is perfect. They feature regularly on her TikTok now. And I mean, that show almost every episode I was like holding my sides crying laughing so hard and it's another murder mystery it was just so funny actually weirdly touched on some of the same stuff we've been talking about here in a much lighter way uh and it couldn't be farther at the other end I mean it's the 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 titular building is uh, one of those fancy New York apartments that probably costs more than all three of us will ever make in our lifetimes, uh, you know, <laughs> in a year. So uh, uh, incredible amounts of privilege there, but but uh, really a, a deeply funny show, I thought. And, I, I you know, there's going to be a season two coming. I can't wait. So, All right. Another good recommendation there. I want to add one from a listener. Uh, we did uh, ask for listener picks for this show and heard from Kathy Lawrence. She emailed us at tcpodcast at thinkchristian.net and nominated the reality series The Voice, long-running show, but it was still one of her favorites this year. Kathy said, the singers this season were incredible. The top semifinalists were all so good. It was hard to choose which one should win. They also allowed them to talk more about their faith and values and to sing Christian songs. When Jershika Maple sang Break Every Chain, it brought the house down and all judges to their feet. So thank you, Kathy, for that. We're going to add that one to the massive list we are compiling of best of your picks for the show notes for this episode. So you guys can check that out for a ton of recommendations. Thank you very much, Michelle. Thank you, JR, for joining me quickly here. Where can listeners follow you to keep up with your writings, other podcasts, anything else you're doing in 2022? Michelle? I have a website, michellemireyes.com. Lots of fun uh, updates and freebies on there uh, related to issues of culture and race. I'm on Twitter, Dr. Michelle Reyes, and then on Facebook and Instagram at michellemireyes. And, uh, you know, always up for the DMs. All right. There you go. How about you, JR? I am at JR Foresteros everywhere that's worth finding me. And a few places <laughs> that aren't just because I started an account and then it didn't turn into anything. So, uh, yeah. Okay. I'm a... Uh, <laughs> I'm still writing about faith and pop culture for TC and a few other places. And uh, of course, our podcast, The Fascinating Podcast, will be back here in a couple a couple weeks. So, Great. Yeah, maybe a resolution for you. Close down some of those um, ghost accounts still sitting out there and unused social Four media Foursquare, right? I don't need to be on Foursquare anymore. <laughs> <laughs> eh, probably not. I mean, I don't want to judge, but. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to another great year of podcasting with, with the both of you. Yes, likewise. Thanks, Josh. Josh, jumping back on real quick here because we did get a chance to hear from Catherine Freeman. Happily, she was feeling better a few days after our recording and was able to share a bit of what she really appreciated about Mare of Easttown. The emphasis on communal bonds and the ways in which community can heal us and be a source of hope and love and support is really wonderful. And, you know, there's like, a scene where one of Mayor's friends decides to give her, you know, 
give a home to like a young mother who's like returning and didn't have a place to live. And just these like small and large acts of like, what does it mean to welcome people in and to love people well and to forgive people and to forgive yourself and to kind of go on. So I don't know. I I loved the show. I thought it was kind of unexpected. I love Kate Winslet. I think she's such a talented actress, but yeah, I thought the performance of her and, and Jean Smart particularly were just so good. And then if we're talking about other shows that we loved last year, Jean Smart had a really good year. I mean, Mayor of Easttown and then Hacks was just like one of my favorite shows I watched last year. So funny, so biting. I also really loved and have talked about on a previous episode, Underground Railroad, which is a really hard watch. You you know, like watch it very slowly, but so beautiful. Barry Jenkins is so talented. So highly recommend Hacks and the Underground Railroad. I mentioned when I was a little nappy head boy and I never put down my alto saxophone. Yeah. Buck jumping down on a boulevard. I couldn't wait to blow my own horn. Ooh. It ain't wrong for you to play along. Playing this song till you die. Come on, come on. In this world with a lot of problems, all we need is a little love. Thank you, thank you. Oh, you make me thank you, thank you for your love. We got a lot of limits. Well, you know if you're hearing music, you're going to hear from me. JJT, your in-house DJ, but this time the specially curated playlist I've pulled together really is a team effort. Sure, it includes many of the songs that I believe came from the best albums of the year, including the track you just heard, I Need You, from John Batiste, his album We Are, with its joyful, New Orleans-flavored, gospel-soaked, soul-pop feel was one of my faves for sure, and I think will probably do quite well at the Grammy Awards, but we have also included songs from many other critically acclaimed albums and several special special choices from our regular podcast contributors as well. A little later in the show, you'll hear a bit from both Julian Baker's Faith Healer and a smidge of Johnny Greenwood's 25 Years from the Power of the Dog soundtrack. But this list is packed with strong tracks from Madison Cunningham, Adele, The War on Drugs, 21 Pilots, The Mountain Goats, Hiss, Golden Messenger, Yeba, Yola, Taylor, and a lot more. One of the tracks in the mix is from an artist on Jack White's Third Man Records label, one that we have been talking about and that I even got to speak to over at True Tunes this year. Natalie Bergman, lead singer, guitarist, and co-songwriter in the band Wild Bell, absolutely knocked me out with her album Mercy. Between her artful, dexterous, and sophisticated blend of West African highlife elements, classic girl group soul, and her stunning songs that dive straight into the heart of pain and loss and come out the other side in the form of simple, almost childlike gospel tunes, I just haven't heard anything like it. She did a single with Beck as well and dropped an EP right at the end of the year that feels like an extension of the same album. I don't like to proclaim one album is the best of the year. I never do that. But Bergman's Mercy was right up there, that's for sure. If you want to see my full list, you can find it over at truetunes.com. But you can find this mix by searching for the Think Christian playlist on Spotify, where this episode's mix sits alongside all of the previous mixes and an archive mix that combines everything we have ever used, or you can just check the link in the emails you get from us. Until next time, this is John J. Thompson, hoping your 2022 is off to a strong start, your instruments are finely tuned, and your batteries are always charged. Rock on. Peace. Josh Larson back with the TC Podcast. Let's take a cue from John J. Thompson there and stick with music. Claude Acho, Eric Danielson, and Sarah Welch Larson are here to talk about 2021's best albums. 
Before we do that, I'm curious to hear from each of you, what was your most played album during last year? Maybe it's the same as the best for you. Possibly time plays a little bit into this. You know, it's probably an album from earlier in the year that just got a lot of repeats. But what did you guys end up uh, spinning the most? Claude, maybe get us started here. Absolutely. Um, without a doubt, listen to the most uh, Donda by Kanye West. Uh, really? Just just now Kanye. So Donda okay. was most fun and also uh, was a cautionary tale to purchase music when it comes out because he revised and changed some choruses that were totally uh, beautiful, removed Don Tolliver from a wonderful song, and I cannot find the original version without breaking oh, wow. uh, laws on the internet. So buy your music and keep it. Yeah, because it's gone now. Yeah, it's especially gone. with an artist like like Kanye. Yeah, I can I yeah. can see that. Sarah, what did you listen to the most? Mine is the same as my best of the year pick. Uh, I listened to a lot of Mountain Goats <laughs> this year, and I listened to Darken here the most. Okay. All right. We will definitely get to that then. Do you have uh, something different, uh, Eric, from your pick? I do. Um, anyone who follows me on Twitter will not be surprised that once uh, the war on drugs, I don't live here anymore, came out in late October, um, that just rewrote my entire most listened to uh, <laughs> list uh, for All the rest right. of the year. So that was on pretty steady repeat late fall through the, the beginning of the winter. So A later release, but still uh, made it up there for most listened. I like it. I'm going to say for me, it, it was Spotify tells me, you know, that it was probably Lucy Dacus's home video. And I think I can thank you for that, Eric, because you and I talked about it on an earlier episode of the TC podcast. Um, and yeah, so I kept giving that more listens just as we discussed hearing those stories that she tells over and over again. But I don't know. I think maybe the soundtrack to Summer of Soul probably got just as many listens, but that's a tricky one too, because you start listening to that and then the algorithm just sends you into like deep cuts of great seventies, R and B and soul. And before you know it, like two hours have passed by and you've gone well beyond that soundtrack, but you're still listening to stuff. So, so those two got a, a lot of listening time from me. All right, let's, let's move on to our best album picks. And I tell you what, this is how I want to do it. You guys have chosen three artists that are pretty new to me. I'm certainly certainly was familiar with their names, but I think Japanese Breakfast might have been the only music I had actually spent time with before. And again, that was thanks to the the algorithm kind of selecting some of those tunes and serving them up on playlists. So I want to do it this way. I want each of you to play the part of the record store clerk. If you can remember back to those days when when such people existed, and sell me on each of these picks. So pretend pretend I only have enough cash to buy one of them. I'm at the store. I'm standing there at the counter. Why should your pick be the one? And especially tell me, you know, why it should be the one because of the theological reflection that it might prompt. Does that sound good to you guys? Sarah, why don't you bring us back to Mountain Goats and talk to me about Darken here? Anybody who knows me knows that I'm a Mountain Goats, like, diehard. Um, I think Eric mentioned once that every time he's on Spotify, he looks over at the sidebar and he sees that I'm listening to them. So um, <laughs> we'll see if I can get you to that point as well. My one-sentence pitch for this record in particular is that it's kind of a punk sensibility, but it's wearing a lot of, like, Western clothing with really strong lyrics. So if you're into... Bob Dylan, Johnny Cash, um, maybe even like a little bit of flavor of the Decemberists. This might be a record that you might appreciate. A lot of really interesting 
hand-picking guitar and some some the piano that they use it sounds a little bit clear and like a little bit old and almost slightly out of tune and there's there's even a little bit of organ music in there so there's a lot of different influences that are getting folded in there um i think on this record there's also spooner oldham and will mcfarlane are both playing on this record so there's a lot of like great music history especially western music that's at play in this particular record And at the same time, it's not pretentious about anything that it's talking about at all. So one of the Mountain Goat's strongest traits is that they're able to take really heavy material and then play with it and play with it. Like this can be a very playful record in a lot of places. It really treats the heavy material with a light touch. And then it also treats the lighter material very, very seriously. And it does so with an and and not a but. So holding the tension of this is hard subject material that we're dealing with. And it's something that's also worth celebrating. So listening to just such a complex idea with all of these with all of these uh, songs um, is just something that I very much appreciate. All right. Well, yeah, that sounds like a great mix. And as you're going on there it sounded like it could have gone pretentious. So it's kind of a relief to hear that you had that fun <laughs> bit too, that they're having fun with this stuff. Is there, if someone was starting out with them from this album, is there a song that you would suggest they start with? So I'm going to kick off and with a song that has kind of a pretentious sounding name, but <laughs> okay. the song itself sort of belies that. So the name of the song is The Destruction of the Cola Super Deep Borehole Tower, which is just a very, uh, John Darnielle is, is the singer and songwriter for the Mountain Goats. It's a very John Darnielle song title. He usually starts off with the song title and then fills in the lyrics afterwards, and then they write the music to fit it. So it's a song about an actual place. There was a borehole that was drilled in Siberia that is still the deepest man-made point within the earth. They were drilling for oil. And uh, the drill shaft got shut down in the mid-90s because they just, they couldn't drill any deeper. Like, it was too hot down there. There's actually a myth uh, that was circulated in the mid-90s that they drilled so deep that they could actually hear the screams of people who were trapped in hell, which is kind of a wild, wild myth to be telling. And so um, the lead singer heard about this and said, I have to write a song about this. It's not a dark song in the slightest. It's very punchy, very percussive, very like upbeat tempo. Talking about somebody who's going exploring, looking for this borehole and the tower that was once erected over it. The tower's gone now. There's really not much of a trace of it anymore. And it talks about maintaining a sense of wonder when you're going and looking for these deep and dark things. And then um, being able to ascribe that wonder and that awe towards something that's bigger than you. So much so that there's a line in the song that talks about, like, you crack through the crust, fall to your knees, and praise the Lord. But it does, again, it doesn't feel pretentious. It actually feels kind of playful, and it's just, it's a lovely tension that really is maintained throughout the rest of the album as well. Retain a sense of grace when it's time to cut the cord, crack through the crust, fall to your knees, and praise the Lord. Listen for the voices calling out from down below. Steady as you go. What will they say back home about you? Who always kept your objective in view? Whose effects included contacts that finally got found inside the Arctic Circle, scattered on the ground, those who came to learn these lessons. That setup sounds like, you know, maybe what's going to happen in the next season of Stranger Things. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but I, yeah, it sounds, it sounds like uh, something I'm definitely going to have to check out. All right, Claude, you are up. What's your pick? 
So my, my pick uh, album of the year is uh, Nas, King's Disease uh, 2. I would sell you on this, uh, Josh, and interested listeners just by um, sort of, you wonder hip hop is such a uh, influential, monumental uh, genre, not obviously not just in our country, but globally. And one of the questions around hip hop is sort of how does this genre age? It's sort of a young, you know, a young person sport. And so it's been interesting to see what happens when sort of the great artists and lyricists and, and poets of hip hop, what, what happens as they age? And so we've seen that a little bit with Jay-Z continues to rap and rap well, uh, release the album 444 a couple of years ago. Sort of uh, my take is he had to release that because Beyonce made an album Lemonade about his infidelity. So he had to speak to that. And people looked at that and really Really praised it as an example of maturity. And I think King's Disease 2 is actually a much better example. Uh, Nas, one of the greatest, you know, Amer- American artists, uh, rappers, an uncanny poet, creative, brilliant mind, a wordsmith. He's kind of back in rare form. Uh, he's been making great music since the mid-90s, and he's, he's kind of back at it. And with King's Disease uh, 2, it's sort of a maturing of a person that you, that you want to see, particularly in hip-hop. He, he's trying to give kingly advice, uh, essentially, is what's happening. And he's moved on from sort of, um, kind of uh, not moved on from sort of street um, narration, but has an added maturity and perspective. And you can tell uh, he's embraced this sense that um, in Nas's mind, he wouldn't use these terms, but he's a a Paul to Timothy's, right? Um, So you see that turn and you see that embrace. On top of that, artistically, he's in in rare form uh, and he's teamed up with a young producer, Hit Boy, to sort of kind of bridge old and new. And the production is incredible. Uh, His his lyricism is, is creative. Um, and, and for the most part, you can tell he's striving for kind of mature thought and uh, thinking deeply about his life and reflecting on it. And you sort of see that with songs like Death Row East, where he kind of looks back on uh, his role in Tupac Shakur's life and his perspective on Tupac's assassination. And in particular, the song that I really like that actually has some really interesting uh, resonances with the song that you mentioned, Sarah, the title that's too long for me to remember, but a song I really did like. <laughs> so I, I'm I'm excited to listen to the rest of the Mountain Goats album. But the song from, from Nas's album that I liked a, a lot that really stood out to me is called My Bible. And it's a song where, again, playing on the title King's Disease, like King Solomon, like King David dispensing wisdom, Nas is trying to do the same thing. And in the song, My Bible, he he does so uh, by looking at men, children, and women in each of the three verses and talking about the wisdom that can be gleaned from their experiences and then giving advice to each of them. And it, it, there's a lot of advice in sort of um, aphorisms and pithy sayings in the Mountain Goat song that you mentioned too, Sarah. And King's Disease is the same sort of thing. And so Nas will go so far as to say, men, don't rap about death. There's power in what you say. He'll tell the kids, you know, uh, I want to speak gospel for the next generation. You can have it all. Just don't side with Satan. And even things like your jewelry may be cursed. Like, be careful what jewels you buy. Um, and then in the verse about women, he, ju- he just kind of dotes on them. And, and Nas, it would be a larger con- conversation, a complicated dynamic uh, with, with women, given some of his relationship uh, with Khalees and some of the things and allegations there. So I want to be respectful of that. But I think uh, the song, My Bible, is really interesting because it's, it's Nas taking on the mantle of elder statement in a way that a lot of rap artists say they're going to take on, but don't actually do. And uh, Nas is is groping. You can tell he's reaching in an Act 17 sort of way, um, looking for transcendent moral and spiritual truth. And, he, and he's really uh, sincerely, deeply applying himself to these things and trying to send that out to others to the point that he ends the song by saying, uh, I'm going to try to get people to see the right path, 
because I think I'm on the right path. And I think there's a humility there that's that's honorable. And yet at the same time, there's a little bit of a caution because, you know, really all we can say if we're relying on our own intuition, our own kind of reading of things, all we can say is, I think I'm on the right path, right? That That's the best that we can do. So there's honor and there's limits, I think, represented in what he tries to do with my Bible. But Musically, man, it, it's inspiring. And then on a, on a deeper theological sort of level, there, there's some, some wisdom there to be considered. Who adhere to sucker religions? Life's the Bible. We live in the biblical times. Uh, first chapter. This chapter called men. Given knowledge by the psychotic, the black was college. We don't add it up, then that they'll leave us divided. It's sorta of like Ten Commandments. I'm talking about men and standards. I'm trying to reverse the damage. You boys obsessed with cameras. The debt we was handed. So many move like Judas look at the past. Now, Claude is not someone you've been listening to as long as you can remember. You've been into music. Do you have that sort of history I, with him? I, yeah, I do. Um, yeah, so I've been listening to Nas since, I think, uh, seventh, seventh grade, conning my stepdad into buying me uh, explicit albums. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so, so Nas and Tupac. How, how'd you maybe, pull that off? Yeah. Do you remember what your uh, your argument I, was? <laughs> I don't think there was an argument. Yeah, that maybe tells, yeah, maybe that's, there didn't need to be an argument. So I, I wish there in retrospect, I wish there was, but I just, I just got what I asked for. <laughs> okay, got it, got it. Well, glad that worked out for you. And yeah, thanks for thanks for talking about Nas here today. Eric, you know, you have an advantage with your pitch because, as I said, I have listened a bit to Japanese Breakfast. But but give me some more background on Michelle Zahner and company and, and tell me why Jubilee is, is your pick. Yeah, so if I was trying to sell you on this, I would start by saying that I think 2021 was the year of Michelle's honor. She is the the leader of Japanese Breakfast. I mean, she's really the the member of Japanese Breakfast. Um, but she also wrote a best-selling memoir this year called Crying in H Mart, which um, talks a lot about growing up Korean-American, you know, kind of her heritage, kind of cultural changes that she went through, trying to relate to her mother. Um, and then it becomes this really beautiful meditation on grief as her mom gets sick and she tries to kind of, as an adult, mother her mom through all of that. And so, you know, I think she put out one of the best albums of the year and also one of the best memoirs of the year. And, and really, to me, is a, a creative that's really worth paying attention to. And I heard Jubilee before I read the book, but it's hard for me now having experienced them both not to kind of put them together in my head um, because so much of what I feel like Zahner is doing is trying to find balance between these things that we struggle to balance, like grief and hope, um, joy and sadness, all of these things that we all kind of struggle with. And, and I'll say more about that in a minute, but, but musically with Jubilee, I think I want to make sure I mention that it's just, it's just such a great indie pop record. And I think if you like pop music across any of the last several decades, I think you can hear traces of like Madonna's stuff from the eighties and nineties. You can even hear though, like stuff that's so much further afield, um, like a Bjork, I think in some of the songs. And I think, maybe one of the the contemporaries that she kind of lines up really well with would be um, a band like Haim because there's just these really propulsive, you know, really great hooks and, and just very, you know, pop kind of propulsion to it. But then when you kind of peel back the layers, um, there's a lot of intricate stuff going on musically, a lot of interesting arrangements and, and that sort of thing. So yeah, I'm a big fan of everything that she's doing. And like a good record store clerk, I guess I would try to push you out the door with with more than one thing, which would be an album and a book. But um, yeah. Making I, that I commission, me, right? Yeah, you know, you got to 
got to keep the doors open, I guess. But yeah, I think, you know, if we want to talk theological resonances, I, I think for me, it really is that search for balance. You know, I, I remember, and this is probably not a very new thought at all, but I remember hearing a, a pastor or theologian one time talk about how God is the only truly balanced being in the universe, that, you know, he's never more just than he is loving, never more merciful than he is, you know, true, any of those things. And and we live our lives searching for that balance all the time, and it's so elusive, and we struggle to do it. And I just see such a beautiful search for that in, in Zahner's work. And one of my favorite songs off the record is, is called Slide Tackle, um, where she's just talking about this idea of she just keeps going back and forth. She says, you know, I want to be a good person, but I also want to navigate this hate in my heart. And I, you know, I want to do this, but I also want to do that. And it just feels like she's really searching to find a consistent way of, you know, navigating through her life. And I think so many of us resonate with that. And even if she's not, you know, expressing some sort of spiritual or theological remedy for that, I think that that so many of us struggle with that and we're looking for examples of that. Um, and so I think Zana really models that really well, how we can find ourselves holding things that seem disparate or seem like they might be working against each other in each hand and, and really just trying to find that balance that, that only ultimately God um, possesses. I want to be Well, the, the Bjork reference may explain why the algorithm brought me to Japanese <laughs> breakfast. So that, that might be it. This would be a really tough choice if I had to make it. I'm glad this is just an exercise and I can go spend a little <laughs> more time with all this music. So thanks for playing along. I do, I do appreciate it. Now, have any of you li- been able to listen to any of these other picks? Uh, Eric, I know that you're a fan of Mountain Goats too. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you have a, a word or two you want to say on that. And yeah, we can mix it up a little bit and get some of uh, your opinions on these other picks. Yeah. Well, I don't know if even John Darnell loves this Mountain Goats record as much as Sarah, but I really like it a lot. <laughs> um, and I listened to it quite a bit this year. I, I feel like I go through this thing with Nas where I forget to listen to him for a couple of years, and then I do, and I remember how great he is. So I was glad to um, refamiliarize myself with with this new one um, on Claude's pick. I, the only thing I was going to say is I was so glad that um, Claude went ahead and tied those first two picks together because I was thinking the same thing. And you know, there's a line on that um, my Bible track where he just talks about the idea, like he admits, like we're living in biblical times. And I think John Darnell is a songwriter who would absolutely say like the days we live in are days of like biblical proportion. And I just appreciate that both of those artists really seem to like realize that it's not one thing or the other. They're they're both very grounded and very earthy artists, but they also acknowledge that there's more going on around them than just what's going on with them. And so I I appreciated the chance to kind of revisit both of those and, and see maybe some interesting connections there. Nice. It, it's funny that you mentioned the um, sense of like biblical like flavor to both Nas and to the Mountain Goats. So this year actually was my introduction to Nas. I'd never listened to him before. I was delighted to listen to um, uh, that record and especially like the sense of history I think that you get. Like there's um, a couple of tracks like where he's talking about the history of Death Row Records and Tupac and and um, Suge Knight and everybody else. And I just, I appreciated that sense of like depth and not just we're looking forward towards the way that we're going to 
be living from here on out, but also looking back to the past and then understanding like this is who we are, this is who we've been in the in the past, and then this is who we're planning to be and going to be. But yeah, I I really really loved that. I love Japanese breakfast as well, so I've I've been listening to that particular record when I'm not listening to the Mountain Goats too. So <laughs> there's there's just like a, it's a clarity I think. The music for Japanese breakfast, and then also a clarity to the lyrics that Nas is is, is rapping as well. Like both of them ha- are so they know exactly what they're going to say and how they want to say it. I was stunned, really, just just by how clear both of those were. I was stunned by the connections, as I, as I mentioned too, and that we, we've been talking about between the Nas record, My Bible, and the the particular record that you highlighted, uh, Sarah, from Mountain Goats. Like, I, that was, I was like, wow. And I, I think actually one of the lyrics in that Mountain Goats track, it mentions King Solomon. And so I was just like, oh my goodness, these songs pair together perfectly. And, I, and I'd like to listen to them more kind of in in succession and comparison um, because, I, you know, not in part of it's the, the genre, but there's a f- kind of frenetic like energy to the Nas track, My Bible, a very different feel, obviously, with the, with the Mountain Goats. And so I, I'd be interested to put those two back to back a little more and think about those. And man, the Jack Japanese breakfast. I, I mean, I, I like, man, I was sold like about 30 seconds into that song. I was like, okay, like, I need to listen to like, this is, this is my house cleaning music. Like I, I, I dig this. <laughs> so, uh, so I don't have much more to say besides that. Um, Nas has also put out another album, uh, just recently surprise album around Christmas, uh, called magic. And so I, I think it, it's just really neat to see people toward what could be the, the latter part of their career, continue to be inspired and make art that, that provokes these kind of conversations. And so I, I found that really, um, yeah, really, really neat and inspiring. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just fascinated at, at the turn that artists take as they mature and how they sort of try to steward that and what they offer to, to their listeners. Well, thank you to all three of you for joining me and doing this. Uh, as I let you go, maybe let listeners know where they can follow you. Maybe give us a give us a heads up too on something that you're working on for 2022 that they should keep an eye out for. Claude, this is the year your book comes out, right? Maybe you go first and tell us about that. Yeah, gladly. Um, yeah, you can follow me um, here when I when I show up uh, every so often, and then on Twitter, uh, it's just my first and last name. And then in, in May, uh, my book, Reading Black Books: How African American Literature Can Make Our Faith More Whole and Just, uh, with Brazos, will will come out. If you uh, if you like what we do at Think Christian, just looking at sort of uh, art and culture through a Christian lens, I think you'll really like this book. I, I try to do that with ten classic works of African American literature, and you can pre-order it uh, at uh, at Baker Books, Amazon, uh, all those all those sort of places. That'll be dropping in May. So I would love for for listeners to give that a give that a glance. I just finished the uh, rough manuscript that you sent me, Claude, today, and I love that you said that because it's exactly you know if we had a fiction section at TC where we were doing that sort of writing about novels and literature, it would be this sort of stuff. It was such an enjoyable read. So I highly, highly recommend it for for Think Christian followers particularly. How about you, Sarah? What do you got going on? You can follow me all over the internet, but especially, unfortunately, on Twitter at Dodgy Boffin. (laughs) That's D-O-D-G-Y-B-O-F-F-I-N. And then this year, cooking up more film writing. And then uh, I've also been filling in a little bit on the Seeing and Believing podcast over at Christ in Pop Culture. Yeah, so I noticed that. hearing my voice a little bit more over there as well. I love it. Eric, what do you got going on? You know, um, there's always things going on. I don't have anything really firm to plug at the moment, but yeah, follow me on Twitter at first and last name. And there, I promise throughout the year, there will be links to essays and dad jokes for everybody. So... 
and a lot of writing. I mean, you you write a lot throughout the year, variety of stuff. So yes, definitely follow Eric uh, on Twitter to keep up with all that. Thanks again, you three. Uh, have a great 2022, all right? Thank you. Thank you, Josh. Appreciate it. Josh Larson again. Before we entirely move on from music, that was some of Faith Healer by Julian Baker. Baker's 2021 album, Little Oblivions, it was one of our favorites from last year and did get some coverage on the TC website. Uh, Micah Ricard wrote about it in the context of Romans 7. So you can find that at thinkchristian.net. Okay, let's talk movies, which I'm eager to do with Joe George and Abby Olchesi. For me, I don't know, film offered some of the rare bright spots of the previous 12 months. So I'm going to give you this loaded question, the both of you. Was 2021 a good movie year or a great movie year? Abby, I want to start with you. Oh, gosh. it's it's For me, it's been a really unbalanced movie year. Um, I okay. was surprised, especially toward the end of the year, how ambivalent I felt about a lot of releases. Then as we got closer to the end of the year, I started encountering a few films that I think like the the ones that were bright spots were like major, major bright spots, like ones that I'm probably going to think about for a long time. So like Licorice Pizza and The Power of the Dog that we're going to talk about today, The Worst Person in the World definitely fits that uh, category. I think I'll probably bring that up a little bit in our discussion today as well. Tragedy of Macbeth, just like it, it was it was pretty much straight bangers for a while there. So I wouldn't say that 2021 was my favorite movie year overall. That still, in my mind, belongs to 2019 in terms of how many things that I just absolutely loved. I am really uh, surprised and impressed by the number of what I think will continue to be enduring classics that did come out at the latter half of this year. So that year-end rush that all three of us are familiar with was really strong for you, it sounds like, where, um, yeah, some of the last-minute releases and maybe even catching up with a few things. Okay, that makes sense. How about you, Joe? Yeah, I, I'm kind of with Abby on this, that it was – there weren't as many great movies to me this year um, that there were in the past. There are only like two or three that I think I find myself really – no, probably five. You know, Pig I really loved, um, uh, Power of the Dog, obviously, Riders of Justice. You know, like those kind of handful that I really loved. And then there were a lot that I liked, but maybe not as not much as everybody else. Uh, one movie that we may be talking about here today that I'm oh, not interesting. quite on. <laughs> yeah, okay. Could that hey, you're be... the one that asked if we could be talking about others, each other's movies, Abby. So I, you opened I'm the door. Very... <laughs> Very excited about this. Let's go right to it because I'm assuming you're talking about Abby's pick, Licorice Pizza. Before we uh, get that opinion, Joe, um, let's let's go to Abby. I'll set it up for you here. Licorice Pizza in select theaters over the holidays. I don't know how widely available it's going to be by the time this episode comes out, but it's from writer-director Paul Thomas Anderson. 
1973, Southern California basically drifts along with two strangely matched characters as they drift along together. Gary is played by Cooper Hoffman, a precocious 15-year-old Gary is, part-time actor, likes to start business enterprises, things like selling waterbeds. And then Alana, who's played by Alana Heim of the band Heim. This is her debut as an actor. And Alana is a 20-something. Her age kind of shifts, according to her, I believe, in the film, what she answers about that. But she's a photographer's assistant when we first meet her, who meets Gary during school photo day. And they end up hanging out, getting into different misadventures, not always sure why they're doing that, I think, as the days roll by and they both get older. Abby, as a way uh, into why this was one of your favorites of the year, I would be curious to hear, what do you think these two main characters are looking for, either independently or together? That's kind of a question that I keep returning to the more and more I think about licorice pizza. Yeah, that's a good question. I think they are both looking for not necessarily romantic love, but like appreciative love and attention and uh, a sense of fulfillment, I think. The fulfillment, and I think probably applies to Alana a little bit more than it does to Gary. Uh, Gary seems like he's still in kind of the performative aspect of his life that comes with, you know, early teenhood where you're trying to like accomplish things and look important to people. Alana, having gone, I mean, having gone through the period of my early 20s a little bit closer than uh, the period of my early teens, I really identified with the kind of desire to find something that feels responsible and means something and kind of shows that you are an adult who knows yourself and who knows your wants and needs. And I think they're they're both still trying to figure that out as characters. It seems a little bit more urgent for Alana, I think because of her, her age and where she's at in life and the kinds of things that she's trying to escape versus the kinds of things that she keeps getting pulled into because of her relationship with Gary. Yeah, that, that all makes sense. And was that one of the main reasons, that identification, that it made it as one of your favorites or were there other things going on here that, that you liked as well? I mean, there are some, some hyper-specific things. Like if Tom Waits shows up and wants to set things on fire, I'm going to love that movie. <laughs> that's just a given. Um, but it's that. And also I think the way that that's communicated in that licorice pizza is sort of episodic and kind of free flowing in terms of the characters kind of drifting apart and coming back together and realizing they care about each other in certain ways at different times and not always consistently. And all of it kind of leading to a point where Alana realizes what she wants in a specific moment and that all of the all of the previous episodic things that we've been experiencing alongside her and Gary have led to that moment. Which is interesting because I feel like it, this is not the only movie that does this and not the only movie that does this with female characters in a way that I find really fulfilling. The other movie that does this is The Worst Person in the World, I think, where we we follow a character through a specific period in her life, which is not all that dissimilar from where Alana is in hers, actually, age-wise. And we kind of come to a similar conclusion where the person that we see at the end is different and slightly more mature and slightly understands themselves a bit better than they did at the beginning in ways that feel both subtle and profound. Yeah, I hadn't made that connection with the worst person in the world, but you're absolutely right. I think the main character there is uh, about 30, right? Maybe a little bit older, but definitely exploring some of the same things. And 
I think your description of where the characters are at the end of each film is dead on because from the outside and maybe the benchmarkers of the world, not much seems to have changed, but the interior sense of self has shifted for both characters in significant ways that we do sense in in the film. So I like that connection between those two movies. Okay, Joe, you know, if you have reservations about licorice pizza, let's hear them. I was a pretty big fan of the film. Didn't make my top 10, but I think it's in my, in the teens somewhere. And yeah, let's hear it. Either if you can speak to this, this character um, question we're talking about, or if there are other things that maybe held you back about the film. Well, so I I did like it. I just didn't love it. And I I like everything that Abby was talking about. I think every time that it was uh, Cooper Hoffman and Alana Haim together, it was just magical, wonderful. None of the comedy bits worked for me at all. Like Bradley Cooper did not laugh once, you know, that's that Kevin Smith speech put to film. You know, oh, I'm blanking on his name, but Christopher Guest player. That that whole bit I found confounding. It just, I don't know that Paul Thomas Anderson is that funny. And I, I, as the movie kind of went on, I found myself resenting those scenes and wanting to get back to the, the main couple. That was, that was magical. And so, again, I liked it. I don't know what those scenes are doing there. I don't know how to make sense of them, and I didn't laugh at them, so. Yeah. Do you know uh, who my girlfriend is? Barbara Streisand? Barbara Streisand. Sand. sand, yeah, like sands, like the ocean, like beaches. Riverside sand? No, but stray sand. Sand. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, I would say that one scene, and I'm looking up his name now because not that we want to put <laughs> entirely the blame on him, but it has been getting a lot of discussion. The scene of the character who's starting a Japanese restaurant and introduces us over the course of the film to two Japanese-speaking women he has married, Japanese women, and he speaks to them in this, you know, exaggerated, supposedly Asian accent. Uh, John Michael Higgins is, yeah, is who plays yeah, yeah. the character. The character is Jerry Frick. I will agree with you. It was an interesting experience in the screening the first time I saw Licorice Pizza. It was mostly critics, so that's the crowd, but, you know, probably maybe 30, maybe 40 people. And when that scene came on um, of him using that accent, it was not necessarily anger and it wasn't laughter. It was like confusion, you know, like it was this shared response of what? So I think that's a case where whatever Anderson meant and based on his other films, I don't think it was anything malicious. It didn't really work for that scene in particular. Um, Bradley Cooper, I think, is he was hysterical for me doing this impersonation of a Hollywood producer, John Peters. It kind of came just at the right time to to juice things up a bit in the movie and give us a different energy and then kind of go away. And, and that was good as well. So those that issue, at least that character didn't particularly bother me. And yes, if you are going to go with the episodic structure, not really capturing you. I can see that. This is definitely more of a vibe of a film than a story. And the development, as we were talking about before, is very nuanced in the characters. But Abby, you're you're the bigger fan than me. So how did those some of those scenes play for you? I would agree on the the John Michael Higgins scenes. It's not, I wouldn't say it's ultimately super clear what we're trying to pull off there. And and given the I don't think it's something that's handled with the nuance that it probably should have been, or I don't, I'm not even sure that it needed to be there in the first place. I'm not a hundred percent on that. The John Peters scenes though, like those are some of my favorite scenes in the movie. Um, (laughs) Mostly because I feel like 
Josh, as you said, it's like it's like a vibe. I feel like this is, I mean, I've never delivered a waterbed to John Peters' house, so I'm not going <laughs> to say that I have a story like this in my life. But I feel like everybody has like a story like that in their life where they are put in a situation that they weren't expecting with some person with a large personality and like stuff just gets out of hand and it gets really weird and you're kind of put at like this strange crossroads of needing to like having to do something that you're not comfortable doing and not sure how to do. In addition to delivering this waterbed to his house, there's a, a fuel shortage and the kids end up having to, I think, back a truck, like a cube truck down a very steep hill. Yes. Um, and essentially just coast it down, which is, it's a terrifying experience. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's super harrowing, but it's, I, I think the best thing that I can kind of compare this to is like, if you listen to um, the Moth Radio Hour, there are a lot of stories like this where it's just like this ridiculous thing happened to me. There are elements of it that are really funny, but ultimately there's like a grain in there of some kind of rite of passage or strange thing that happened that required me to have a reckoning in my life, which I think you can kind of see in Alana's face specifically. I think for Gary, it's 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 kind of happening. There's sort of something in there where he's realizing that this is, he's, he's out of his depth here. And Alana is realizing that she has to like step up and be an adult. There are small movements of character in that scene that I really liked watching and experiencing alongside the characters and also felt authentic to like the kind of experience that I think a lot of people probably have at some point in their lives, like close to that age. Yeah. This does feel like, um, sitting down with someone who says, Oh, and then once this happened to me, um, yeah. and then, and then so, <laughs> Oh, and then, and that jogs another memory that they share. And they're all just so, you know, immaculately filmed by Anderson that, that I was carried along. Um, and you know, it's right. You're right. These two characters, when you mentioned adulthood, uh, Abby, for me, it's like they're constantly crossing back and forth across the line of, you know, adolescence and adulthood, even Alana, as some of the looseness of childhood that she sees in Gary appeals to her, right? That seems more freeing and there's less pressure. And so you think, well, that's kind of why she's hanging around with him. It, it, it's a chance for her to, to lift that weight on her shoulders of adulthood that she doesn't know how to carry yet. This also made me think, you know, about these two characters from a faith perspective. If you talk about faith formation and this idea of being at that age of searching and trying to find some sort of place for yourself, it struck me that even in a faith-filled home, which we see Alana's is, right, um, where Judaism is, is practiced, there's a scene of the family praying uh, before a meal, that really doesn't give her an anchor either, even though it seems very deliberate on her father's part in particular. It just isn't real or relevant to her until, um, you know, to make it has something else is going to have to require it to mean something for her, something other than tradition. Tradition is important, but maybe not always enough. And, and one of the things that was interesting to me as I was thinking about these two characters is, you know, and it comes to faith formation for any of us. What is the enough? You know, what's going to make it kind of click, even if you've been raised in a Christian home? What's going to make it click for you? Because the larger question for these two characters is, what is going to make life click for me as Alana? When is it going to click? And for Gary, too, when am I going to hit that point of adulthood, which I'm striving so hard for, where things are going to click? And part of it is realizing, like, it's never going to 100% click and kind of accepting that. So I thought that was an interesting aspect of licorice pizza as well. All right, Joe, let's let's get to your pick. Um, the Power of the Dog also happens to be my favorite film of the year. It is now available on Netflix, so a little easier to find for folks. 
I've written and talked about it so much. Why don't you go ahead and, and set it up for listeners who haven't seen it, Joe? Oh, I got all excited when you did the summary for, for Abby's movie, thinking, oh, good, I don't have to try to summarize this one. Okay, here goes. The, the movie's about two brothers, uh, Phil and George Burbank. Phil is played by Benedict Cumberbatch. George is played by Jesse Plemons. They own a ranch in 1925 Montana. George is, he's, he's kinder, soft-spoken, um, but not quite as with it or sharp but is more kind, if sometimes a little bit thoughtless. But Phil, on the other hand, is this boisterous, domineering, very loud, manly man. And he is constantly referring to his mentor, friend, maybe more than that, Bronco Henry as this legendary Old West figure, right? And so uh, George marries a woman named Rose, played by Kirsten Dunst, who is the widow of a man who committed suicide. Phil resents Rose's presence and bullies her constantly and also bullies her son, Pete, or Peter, uh, played by Cody Smith-McPhee. And Peter is a not particularly masculine child, which is the reason that he gets the uh, the brunt of Phil's wrath. And the movie kind of starts out as this psychodrama and then becomes sort of a Hitchcockian thriller by the end. And um, I don't want to say too much more uh, besides that as far as plot goes. Yeah, I think that's wise. I think we should try to tread lightly here because um, unlike Licorice Pizza, plot is very integral to this movie based on uh, 19, 1967 Thomas Savage novel. Not, not sure if you mentioned that, Joe, but um, that's where Campion's drawing the story here. And um, there are some twists and turns along the way. In retrospect, it's one of those where you're like, oh, I should have seen that. And it's not that Campion is really trying to pull anything over our eyes. Um, it's more about, I think, how the characters respond to some of the realities we become aware of that this movie is really interested in than, than the surprises or the plot twists. Man, so many reasons I love this, this film. I've long been a Campion fan, best known before this for the piano. And uh, I just think she's she's working at the height of her powers here. Cumberbatch's performance was my favorite of the year. The cinematography is absolutely gorgeous. New Zealand standing in for Montana. But yeah, tell me, Joe, why, why was this uh, one of your favorites? Oh, gosh. I mean, all the performances, like you said, and there's a patience to it. I think in the wrong hands, it could become straight thriller. And it's not. There's just such... Campion takes so much time to linger on the subjects, uh, even when she's staging a tense scene. So there's a, there's a scene midway through where Rose is practicing the piano and she's doing it badly to prepare for a big dinner party. And Phil is upstairs playing the same tune on his banjo extremely well. And this is him bullying. Like, for a minute, you think maybe this is where they're going to connect and get along. And it turns out, no, 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 Phil is showing off how insignificant she is to him. And the two aren't in the same room. And yet the way that Campion moves her camera around only accentuates just how trapped Rose is. And the way that it just lets her, sits on Dunst for a minute to let her kind of walk through the emotions of, I want to you know, make my husband happy. I'm trapped. I don't know what to do about this guy over here. It's just the, the pacing and the movement of these rich characters. I just think it's wonderful.
one of my favorite scenes of the year. And yeah, the camera plays so much into that. I, I love how it's far away from her on the piano at the beginning of the scene and then kind of moves forward. And if I'm remembering correctly, I think when she screws up, it stops and just kind of like kind of jostles itself like, oops, and then then it starts moving forward again. It's just spectacular. Abby, how about you? What did you make of uh, The Power of the Dog? I loved it. And actually, Josh, I wanted to ask you, I know after you had initially seen this, you uh, you mentioned to me, I think over Twitter, that it reminded you a bit of uh, The Night of the Hunter. And I wondered specifically if you meant that musical moment. I did. <laughs> yeah, because when that popped up in the film, my mom and I both went, oh. <laughs> uh, how about the whistling? The whistling, yeah. too, though, yeah. like later yeah. on, Phil yeah. whistles this same tune. Again, there he and Rose are not together in the same space. She's outside, kind of mm-hmm. in an alley between the house and an outhouse. And he's upstairs at a bedroom window and sees her and he just starts whistling. Yeah. So yeah, that's very, yeah. very Robert Mitchell, <laughs> Night of the Hunter, right? Absolutely. Um, I think also something that those two movies share, an interest in masculinity and of the uh, performative and toxic variety often. Um, and I think how that relates to women. And also, I think with, I mean, not to spoil too much, but there's some discussion of uh, repressed homosexual desire and tendencies that I think those two movies also share specifically. I mean, Charles Lawton definitely felt that way. Not to make everything about Night of the Hunter, as I always do, but... Um, <laughs> no, it's I, allowed. It's I, allowed. It yeah, makes sense it's here. Allowed. <laughs> I think, yeah, I, 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 was, I was drawn to that. And I thought that was a really interesting... Uh, exploration of of what men think manliness needs to be and uh, authentic expression of the self and how it takes different forms and in unexpected ways. And I think some of the, the movie's more um, kind of thrillery elements toward the end play with our expectations of characters based on the film's interpretation of their masculinity, I think, in, in really interesting ways that I think is kind of ripe for larger discussion. Also, some of the more tender moments, I think, work in that uh, with that as well. You know, we've get there's a wonderful scene between um, Dunstan Plemons where he's trying to express how happy he is to be with her. And when you read that in all of the abuse that he's taken for being the wrong kind of man, and even uh, Cumberbatch has a a tender reminiscing scene that is clearly some side of himself that he's not showing to somebody else. I mean, you're spot on the the way that a type of masculinity is a trap and impressed upon other people is I think a big part of this movie to add to the trapped feeling that Rose is feeling as well. Yeah. And I think that's a big part of Cumberbatch's performance is I've always found him to be a very outside actor that sometimes has held me back from his performances. But here that's part of the role is to perform these, uh, exhibitions of masculinity and it he's just perfectly suited for you know pushing that to the forefront whether it's his the vocal performance how he walks throughout this movie just kind of taking up the physical space really something to watch so we would be remiss if we didn't address the biblical root of the title here of the film and the title of the savage novel as well it's taken from psalm 22 Um, That psalm, of course, achingly echoed by Christ on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Originally, a psalm of David lamenting his torment at the hands of his enemies. Now, the dog references uh, that the film cites, those are in verses 16 through 21, dogs surround me, and then a bit later, deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. And we actually see, you mentioned Peter, the, the teenage boy, 
played by Cody Smith McPhee, we see him reading those verses, tracing his his finger over them in the film's final moments. We won't provide the context of what else has been going on there, but that's when, you know, Campion chooses to literally make the connection. And you think, okay, so maybe it's throughout the movie, I was just thinking, like, is it just she just wanted to keep the title? Maybe there's more about this in the book. But clearly there's something there the movie wanted to emphasize. I don't know if I've found my way to what that might be, to be honest. So I'd love to hear um, if the two of you have any theories to that. Uh, I read it as um, the other dog that shows up, besides the literal dog they sometimes play with, is a shadow on the mountain range that looks like a dog. That's right. A a barking dog, a snarling dog. And throughout the movie, Phil will look out at the range and it's kind of this, if you see it, you're his type of person. And he has a moment of connection with Peter where Peter sees it as well. And it's interesting because in the Psalm, David is talking about dogs as something that's attacking him, hemming him in. And there's the sense that when Phil is looking out at the mountain range and at the dog is there as well, that he's hemmed in somehow, right? Like the, the the real him, the authentic him is being held back and he has to be this performative masculine sort of self. And that's what you see him kind of beginning that cycle also with Peter, that Peter can't be, has to be a certain type of man and the type of man he is is not acceptable. Um, and so I, I thought that was an interesting contrast that Campion uses all of these gorgeous sweeping shots to show us how wide open New Zealand as Montana is, the sort of freedom that you feel there. And yet there's the sense that, you know, they're, they're trapped in even within this space. And so in, in relationship to the psalm, I kind of read it as they're praying for deliverance of some type. You know, the, even if the characters don't know what they want to be delivered from, we as the viewers want them to be delivered. You know, we want Phil to just be the type of person he is. We want we fear for Peter, you know, that they're going to be inherently not good enough. And at least I, as a viewer, wanted them to be delivered. So that's the that's the connection that I saw there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that tracks. How about you, Abby? I love that, Joe. And I think an interesting element that I think of it kind of in relation to that is like there's there's a mention during like the big the big dinner scene that uh, before Phil became like this manly man cowboy, he was a classics major and was interested in these kind of more feminine considered things. And I think it's it's sort of suggested that he sort of sees Peter as the kind of person that he used to be before becoming Manly Man Cowboy and kind of wants to shape him into what he has become. And I think maybe there's a, I couldn't help but feel a little bit sad that those two things couldn't be reconciled to each other, which I think might be part of that message, right? Is that we're we're hoping that they could have, and that Phil specifically, because he seems to be suffering so much under the under the weight of that feeling of of performance, you kind of wish that he could have the freedom to be both of those things and the freedom to be able to traverse that huge, beautiful expanse of country around him, being able to be his authentic self and balance those elements of his his experience and his personality and his desires. Yeah. And that speaks to, you know, the way Campion presents so many of her characters throughout her filmography is that even the ones you might think immediately are, you know, dastardly villains. Um, She's interested in exploring the layers beneath that and partly the why or the how. And um, I think we get that here. You know, Phil is the tormentor. 
clearly set up that way very much in the beginning, but we gradually learn how he may be tormented too, perhaps in his past, definitely in his present, in the way Joe is is talking about. So yeah, both the use of the psalm and even that image, Joe, you mentioned of the clouds forming the shadow on the mountains in the in the shape of a dog, those things are both they have such explosive potential in Campion's hands and, and they could mean so many things, sometimes conflicting, but all at once. I think that's what makes her sort of a difficult filmmaker is it's sometimes hard to pin down what are we supposed to learn from this movie uh, because it could be so many different things. Uh, but there's a richness there that that I just appreciate about her work and especially the power of the dog. So more support for The Power of the Dog came from a listener and occasional TC contributor, Jonathan Kana. Uh, he emailed us at tcpodcast at thinkchristian.net. Power was number three on his top five list, and he did highlight uh, that insidious use of, um, I think it's Strauss's Radetzky March, Jonathan pointed out, in that banjo versus piano scene that we hear. So that was a highlight for him as well. Anything else um, as far as the power of the dog goes or licorice pizza you guys wanted to throw in there before we wrap up? I don't think so. I think we've, we've covered we most did it. of it. This is, yeah, this has okay. been a great, yeah. a great discussion. Yeah. yeah. I, I, There's going to be no more discourse up. about either movie. So we, we <laughs> yeah, that's it. right. We've answered, we've answered every question that anybody could yep. possibly oh, have about either Joe. one. And, oh, uh, Joe. Yeah. Just wait until the Oscar nominations come out yeah. and suddenly these will be the two worst films that were ever made. So right. um, prepare, prepare yourself for that phase. <laughs> well, thanks to Jonathan Kana for weighing in there. Thank you, Abby. Thank you, Joe. Real quickly, maybe tell listeners where they can follow you and, um, and what you'll be up to in 2022 pop culture wise. Uh, you want to go first, Abby? Sure. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Abby Olchesi. It's A-B-B-Y. O-L-C-E-S-E. Um, what I will be up to, I have uh, a piece up on TC recently uh, about uh, Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley. I also, yeah, I also have a piece that went up about the tragedy of Macbeth and uh, its place in Joel Cohen's filmography, which now is that is uh, expanding to Apple TV Plus in, I think, a week or so. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's going to yeah. be on Apple TV Plus mid-January. So by the by the time yeah. this episode is out, it should be available there. Fantastic. Yeah. So uh, it's it's ripe for for rechecking out or checking out for the first time now that uh, that has expanded to more viewers and moving forward. Hopefully, things won't be continually canceled, and uh, I'll be doing some <laughs> some coverage of some uh, satellite screen events from the Sundance Festival that will be showing in Lawrence uh, near me and some coverage of uh, True-False in March, fingers crossed. Sounds good. Yeah, both those titles, uh, Tragedy of Macbeth and Nightmare Alley, um, I think they're both in my teens for the best of the year. So re they're both really so good, good films, yeah. both of them. All right, Joe, you're going to be publishing The Superpowers and the Glory this year, right? Yes. Yeah, I, I'm almost done with the manuscript. Uh, so it will be going to the editor in a couple of weeks, and hopefully we'll see print in a couple of months. So um yeah. If you're all the way in on superhero movies and you're not sick of them yet, then uh, look out for that book. I'm I'm really proud of where it's coming out. So, yeah. Congratulations. And to keep well, up you. with that, Twitter, is that the best place to follow Oh, yeah. Uh, yes, of course. Thank you. J.A. George I.I. Um, is the best place to follow me. And I will be obnoxious on Twitter about it when it comes out. So. <laughs> Sounds good. We'll we'll look forward to that. Looking forward to some more pieces at thinkchristian.net from the both of you uh, as the year moves on as well. So 
Thanks again. Looking forward to another year working together. All right. Thanks, Thanks Josh. Josh. just heard some of 25 Years, composed by Johnny Greenwood. Greenwood scored both The Power of the Dog and Licorice Pizza, so seemed appropriate to include his work. 25 Years comes from The Power of the Dog, which also featured my favorite score of the year. I don't know about you, but I've come away enriched by this episode. Reservation Dogs was a series I hadn't watched until JR and Michelle gave me the nudge. I'm really glad they did. Nas and the Mountain Goats are now getting Spotify spins from me. Hopefully, you've encountered some new stuff, some new music, TV, or movies to check out as we get into 2022. Some pop culture that either reflects the goodness of the gospel reflects our need for it, or just sits alongside God's story in some compelling way. Thanks to all the listeners who submitted suggestions and picks for this show. We couldn't quote everyone at length, but I do want to get in quickly here a few more recommendations. Josh Baylog said that his favorite album was Hold Still by Taylor Lenhart. In the world of movies, Oliver Chang fell for the Joaquin Phoenix starring family drama, Come On, Come On. That was a really good one, Oliver. I'm with you there. Then a couple of TV picks here. Daryl DeClerc highlighted the Netflix series Made, and Tyler Reed had this to say about the BBC series Can't Get You Out of My Head. It's epic in scale, and I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. Its pessimism reminds me of how lost we all are, but that we do have a great hope in Jesus that justice will eventually prevail one day. Thanks again to all the listeners who provided feedback. And yeah, you can always stay in touch with us by emailing us at tcpodcast at thinkchristian.net. We'd love to share more of your thoughts on pop culture throughout the year in various episodes. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at Think Christian. And if you want to make sure you don't miss out on any of the articles we publish over at thinkchristian.net, Sign up and subscribe to receive our emails over at thinkchristian.net slash subscribe. For our YouTube viewers, you missed out on a ton of music for this episode, even more than usual. We have samples from the albums that we discussed, but also tracks from John J. Thompson's Spotify playlist that he compiled for this show. It's a massive one. It combines John's picks for the best of the year, the picks from our panelists, and also listener choices. It's really a nice representation of the music from 2021, and you can hear it by searching for the Think Christian playlist on Spotify. Now, for those of you who do New Year's resolutions, maybe resolve to give us a review on Apple Podcasts in the next couple of months. Star rating would be great. A couple of comments are even better. As we look to grow the show in 2022, that would be a big help getting us in front of new listeners. The Think Christian Podcast is a listener-supported production of Reframe Ministries, a family of programs designed to help you see your whole life reframed by God's gospel story. Our audio engineer and post-production supervisor is John Reeder, and Reframe's co-director overseeing content strategy is Robin Bassel. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks to consider how another aspect of our pop culture fandom connects with our faith. 